This morning, I have the privilege of ending our two-year journey through the Bible. Can you guys believe that? We have spent two years going through the whole Bible, the narrative of the scripture in the Old Testament, but we went through the whole New Testament in some way, shape, or form, and it has been fast and furious. But one of the things I want to do is I just want, I just want to encourage you and, and just praise you for sticking with us. Because to be totally honest, so many people would never want to go through something that has been so fast and furious. They would say, hey, stop. We can't handle it. But you guys have rolled with the punches. We've gone through it in life group. And now we're wrapping up the last four verses. And I want to just go back to make sure of four chapters, not four chapters, eight chapters, four books, four books, not many again uh, to end. But the reason we did this is we feel like there is a growing illiteracy in the scriptures. People are not familiar with the Old Testament. They're not familiar with the story. They're really not familiar with the New Testament either, that the church has become more topical. People only know what they've heard from sermons, and they just have not been exposed to the broad narrative of Scripture. And so we went in this overview to try to help you see the, the overall storyline, this unified story that begins in Genesis 1 and ends in Revelations we wanted it to be a place where not that you would have all your question answers or we would be able to deep dive, but more than anything, that it would whet your, whet your appetite, your appetite for God's word, that it would almost leave you like, man, I wish we would have been able to do that more. And so we knew it was going to be a challenge in many ways, but I pray that this has been a two-year journey that will help you engage for the rest of your life. Because what we know is that it's becoming more and more of a challenge to stand firm in our faith. And what I believe is that we're going to need to know this word to be able to stand firm and faithful as we move forward in our generation and in our time. So if you're new, you're joining us as we wrap up this series, and we're going to be overviewing the books of 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Jude. You ready? Okay, this week um, was Timothy Keller's funeral. If you guys are unfamiliar with Tim Keller um, and you, you didn't know that he had passed or, or that his funeral's this week, I encourage you to go back, uh, go to YouTube. It was streamed live. Um, I would encourage you to listen to it. It was a challenge and an encouragement of a life lived well and finished well. Um, and those are always encouraging stories for me. But the reason I bring that up is um, he's been one of the mentors in the faith from afar for me. And I was listening to one of his sermons over First John, and he told this story. And I want to help us use it to get into what we're going to be talking about and how we're going to look at these passages today. And so this is from Tim Keller telling a story um, about the Apostle John. So he says this. Eusebius was a third century church historian, and he preserved a story about John's ministry in the last years of his life that was not in the Bible. This is just from Eusebius, an early church historian. And he tells this story. John was an old man and was 
um, had won a man to Christ, had led him to the Lord, and had been discipling, but he was about ready to go on a trip, and so he went to the local bishop of the town or the elder of the town and said, hey, take care of this young man while I'm on my journey, and I'll come back and disciple him. And so he goes and leaves and comes back, and when he gets back, he goes directly to the, to the elder and says, hey, where's the young man that I left in your care? And he said, well, he's dead. And the Apostle John says, what do you mean? And according to Eusebius, the way the, the elder responded was, well, he's dead to God uh, because he, he abandoned the faith and went back and fell in with his old friends and had gone back to a life of crime and is now leading a band of robbers up in the mountains where no one could go because if anyone would try to get near the hideout, those, watch, those looking out for the hideout would take them and kill them. And so he says, the, the, the elder had said to John, he's dead to God, he's left the faith. And at that point, John rips his cloak in grief and says, get me a horse. And so this old man gets on a horse and rides into the mountains where it is absolute positive death to go. And when he gets up there, the robbers grab him and he says, take me to your leaders. That's what I want. And so they take they take him to their leaders, which is really ultimately his judgment seat Will he will face his death. And as they bring him to the leaders, this young man that had left the faith and gone back into a life of crime immediately recognizes John. And Eusebius tells this story. He says, at that point, this young man who is armed with all of his friends surrounding him begins to run away, <laughs> begins to run off. And John just takes off after him. And I think everybody's just stand shocked watching this scene play out. And he runs after him and John yells at him and he cries out. He says, why flee me? I'm an old unarmed man. But he pleads with him. Don't you see there's still hope for your life? I'll gladly suffer death for you as the Lord suffered death for me. I'll give my own life in exchange for you and yours. Stop and listen. Trust me. You see me, trust me. And Eusebius says, hearing these words, the man stopped, hurled his weapons away, and trembling began to weep bitterly, and he came back. Now, if we knew a man like John, we would say, where do you get that kind of, those kind of guts? Where do you get that kind of freedom and that kind of confidence and that kind of courage? And in the book of 1 John, if you were to look at the first four verses, I think you hear John's secret. In those verses, he declares, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with us which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The confidence of John is the confidence that we can have fellowship with the one true and living God. That confidence to face death, to pursue those who have turned away, that confidence 
to not worry about anything, to know that no matter what you face in this life, no matter how life happens, that you can stand firm in your faith is because you can know God. And not just in theory know about him, but you can personally and daily engage with the one true and holy God. And that means you can have confidence to contend with anyone in any situation you come to. And so as we look at these chapters, as we look at 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Jude, what we're really going to look at is how they lay out what it takes for us to contend for the faith in a culture that challenges us to compromise daily. How do we live with the kind of faith that John had and all of these apostles? Jude, in verse 3, says this, and he's writing a letter. This is the brother of Jesus the half-brother of Jesus, the half-brother of James, and he says this, he said, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about your common salvation, so wanted to write a theologically deep and, and maybe about what, what the gospel is, he said, though I wanted to write that to you, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Church, we need to recognize that we are living in a battle each day. And that this has been a battle that has existed since the early church, a battle for our lives, a battle for our hearts, a battle for our minds. And we are called as believers to be those who would contend for the faith, that we would be able to stand firm in a culture of compromise because it is all around us and it has always been all around us. It's not anything new that the culture stands against Christ and him crucified and resurrected. Our culture today, we see it and sometimes I think there's a danger in America because we have somewhat of an illusion that America has always existed with God at the center of its life. Um, God has definitely been around because God is present and there have been believers in America for a long time, but we have always lived in a culture that battles against true devotion to Christ. And yes, now we see it. Our culture challenges to compromise our faith every day, to compromise truth, to compromise what it means to follow Jesus, to compromise us trying to help others to follow Jesus. They're fine if we have a private faith. They're fine if our faith remains silent and we keep it in the walls of our buildings. But if we express Jesus and a different kind of living, our culture will do everything it can to cancel us. And in this moment, we're called to contend for the faith as Jude challenges us. We're called to stand firm in this culture of compromise. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. And, you know, I've, I've begun thinking about what that looks like, thinking about how the world puts pressure on the church to compromise. And that is one of the things that we have to stand against. We have to stand against what the Bible calls the world. It's kind of this, those outside of the church walls that um, is still in sin and believes in other gods and believes in themselves and worships all kinds of creatures and, and the created things. And in the light of this, we are called to be that light of the world. If we think about the biblical narrative, we've 
we've gone for. God called a people out, the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people of Israel. And then from the people of Israel, Christ came and then Christ called the church and all those who would believe. And to all those people throughout all of history, God has said, be a light to the world. Be a kingdom of priests. Show, show the world what it means to walk in relationship with me and to love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Show that world. Reach them with the gospel. Seek to reconcile them to the one true God. And First John does, in one small section, talk about this world and how we're supposed to stand against it. He says this in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. I think all of us who sit in a church, we know there, there is a world outside of this building. There are worlds outside of this faith that lives in opposition to God. And it's open and direct, right? And we should not be surprised by that. But in these final four books, while this is one area we are called to contend against and stand firm against, it's not the primary group of people we're called, these four books are calling people to stand against. Because what I think is harder for those of us in the church and what has been harder throughout history is how do we stand firm not only against the world which is outside, which really we're called to love and pursue and try to, try to reach with the gospel. I think one of the harder things is this second group of people, which is learning how to stand firm against false teachers. So Jude started with, hey, I feel this pressure to call you to contend for the faith. And the next verse says why. It's in verse four. He says this. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this con condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. One of the battles of all Christian history has been how do we keep the truth the truth? How do we not deviate from the gospel of Jesus Christ? How do we stand firm against false teachers? And so in these four books, they all mention it in different ways. 2 John 7 says it this way, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such one is the deceiver and the antichrist. 3 John 9 speaks of one of those teachers who is denying truth and causing problems. It says, I have written something to the church, but diatrophies who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. He does not acknowledge the teaching of the apostles and their, and their message. 1 John says it a lot. I'm just giving one reference here, but in 1 John 4, he says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is the message of these last four teachers, that we are to stand firm and contend for the faith against false teachers. There are many false teachers. Now, 
When you look at Christian history and you look at the New Testament, there are two large groups of false teachers that they address. And I want to just cover these to make sure and, and kind of help you see where they fit in with these four books. But two different types of false teachers, and they're going to fall on two opposite ends. And one is going to be legalism, and one is going to be license, or what we might call nomianism, which is following the law, that's legalism, or antinomianism, which is anti-law. Okay? So that's license. That means, and we're going to express this. So in this false teaching, the first one, legalism, what do they believe? A legalist believes, um, as a belief, legalism is the conviction that we can make ourselves acceptable to God by keeping rules. Often the rules in view are those imposed by other people, not those required by God. Okay? This happened to Israel, right? They took the law of God and they added to it, right? And it became laws made by man that govern them more than the law of God. And Jesus points that out over and over again through the gospels. Church, let's be really clear. We do this too. The church has been known for doing this throughout all of ages. We create new rules that are rules of man and we, we accentuate and, and highlight the rules of man over the rules of God. And that's been a battle throughout church history. It's why we had a reformation. It's why we have church splits. There's all kinds of different reasons things have happened because often we, be, we lean towards a legalistic side. Now, that's a belief. What can this look like in practice? Let's, let's make sure we make sure understand this. What does legalism look like? As a practice, legalism is the keeping of humanly sanctioned laws with a view, and make sure you hear that, a gaining merit with God by doing so. Keeping humanly sanctioned rules with the divine um, goal to gaining merit with God by doing so. If you do this, God will love you more. If you do this, God will love you more. That's why legalism works. We think if I work hard enough, I can earn something before God. He will love me more. I will be better off. Or, I'll, or for some people, it's the way to gain salvation. And if I'm not doing good, one of the ways legalism works, if I'm not doing good, people use fear and say, you're, you're out. You're not a believer. You've never believed. And so they, they, they manipulate and use laws and legalism to cause people to try to be good people and follow rules. Okay. Now, license is on the other end. As a belief, what, what are people who teach license or antinomianism? As a belief, because of God's grace, I can now live however I want. There is no sin or law. In our day and age, where, where do we have a tendency? Where is the um, pendulum swung? It's swung here, Right? It is so common today to just be like, you know what? God loves everyone, which means, and God loves them no matter what, which means you can continue to live in sin. You never have to change. You never, there isn't any sin because God made you and you're okay to live however you want to live. And if he designed you to do this, 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 or this, that's just how God made you, right? And so we've, we've kind of swung away from legalism to license. And as a practice, people live in the sin they have always indulged in and say, God is okay with that. That's legalism and license, kind of in lay terms. So what are, what are they facing in this church here and now? In Jude, it says really clearly, they said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Also in Jude 4, it says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed 
who long ago were designated for condemnation. Look at this last line. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and design and, and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So is it new that people took the grace of God and abused it to live however they want to? No, it's been around forever. Um, this is just one end of the spectrum. Now, if you want to talk about legalism in the New Testament, we already went over this, but legalism really exists. You see that addressed in Galatians uh, is one of the books that really gets into that. But over and all, as we think about what false teachers teach and how they lean towards legalism or license, while Jude really is addressing this license piece, the major false teaching and really the thing that gets essential and really the essential false teaching we have to always address in every generation is a rejection of the person and work of Jesus. Hey guys, any, any lean towards legalism or any lean towards license is people have to do something with Jesus because Jesus comes and calls us to a way of living that demands us to be transformed, which calls sin, sin, and, and says that sin had to have a payment. And, and he calls the world to repentance, really, through just his presence. He calls the people of Israel to repent because they've been legalistic. And he calls the rest of the world to say, hey, look, the way of God has always been declared, and, and I've been living in the wrong, and now I have to confess my sin and admit that Jesus is the only way to salvation. And so when we look at First, Second, and Third John, what we're really looking at is a defense of the person of Jesus because the greatest and most essential false teaching we must contend with is this rejection of the person work with Jesus. So let's look at 1 John and we're going to kind of go fast through some of these scripture, but here we go. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. 1 John 4, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now in the world already. 2 John says it this way, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one as a deceiver and the antichrist. We must see that these central truth we must proclaim and defend and be able to contend with is the message of the person and work of Jesus, the son of God who became flesh and dwelt among us, the son of God who lived a perfect life and died the death we deserve so that he could pay for the sins on the cross for all humanity, for all who would believe. The fundamental thing our culture is currently rejecting is the person and work of Jesus. We've rejected his word. We've rejected, we've rejected his sacrifice for sins because we have even rejected the concept of sin. If we are to contend for the faith passed down, we are if we are to really stand firm in a culture of compromise, these final four books call us to three requirements. So if we're gonna be able to be people who contend for the faith, here's the three things they're gonna call us to. Number one, abiding fellowship with God. Number two, 
abiding fellowship with God's people. And number three, abiding fellowship with God's word. Church, you cannot stand alone against the culture of compromise. And you cannot stand in your own wisdom. And what is more, you cannot stand unless you truly, personally know the one true God in Jesus Christ who he sent. This concept of abiding, it's central to the theology of John. It's central to all of the New Testament. It is the idea of a relationship that remains, a whole life relationship, a, a relationship with God that while it may begin with believing truths, those truths at one point becomes the reality of who you are. And you can't fake that. You can't go through the motions of that. It has to become who you are. And that moment that it becomes who you are is that moment when you have been born again and you've recognized, I needed a savior. He came and truthfully, hopefully, that has stirred your heart in such a way that you've lived transformed. So, what do these books say about these three things? If you want my PowerPoint, I'll give it to you because we're about ready to go quickly. You guys ready? First, abiding fellowship with God. What does this look like? Several different areas that this, these passages call out. This is from 1 John 1.3. It says, that which we have seen and we, have, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Again, the key is a relationship, fellowship with God. The book of 1 John, if you want to know, is about fellowship with God and fellowship with others. <laughs> it's, it's going to be so in, intertwined throughout this whole story. So abiding fellowship with God. 2.28 says it this way, and now little children abide in him, remain in him is another word used, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in, the same, in shame at his coming. Christianity has never been about confessing a belief, getting baptized, and that being a one-time thing. It is a lifelong relationship with Jesus through the Spirit and his people and his word. It is, a, it is a lifelong thing. It is not just a one single moment in time thing. It is a relationship that we remain in for our life. Where does that begin? It does have a beginning point, And I want to make sure you understand this because I think, one, I don't know who's in this room and where you are in your faith, but to have an abiding relationship with God, you have to first believe in Jesus. And this is said over and over again in these books. This is 1 John 5, 13. And I want to make sure I say this one first even. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Let me be the first to say this. If you've never heard this before and you're not a believer, guys, the laws and requirements and the way of following Jesus, if you're not a believer, you don't have to listen to anything else I say. <laughs> if you're not a believer, because all that we're going to go over are for people who have said, I've believed in Jesus. It's the first step on this relationship and in this relationship with God. Continue on. This is from 1 John 3, 23. He says this, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son of Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us. 
Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. So what, what allows you to abide in God? Believing in Jesus and loving others and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. When we've believed, the spirit comes. John continues, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. We do not have relationship with God if we have not believed in Jesus as the Son of God who came and lived and died for us. This is the foundation. This is the beginning point. 1 John 5 continues to say this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. 1 John 5, 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. I want to make sure we see this. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. You ever want to know if you've overcome the world? Have you professed belief in Jesus? That's the greatest victory in life. Because from that belief comes life eternal. From that belief, your whole destiny is determined That is the distinguishing point in all of your life. Are you a believer in Jesus Christ or are you not? And that is the beginning point. And over and over again, this is what these books point us to. 1 John 5, 10 through 12 says this, whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I hope you guys see that the first step in standing firm is believing in Jesus Christ as the son of God. The second is this. To have abiding fellowship with God, you must obey his commands. This is 1 John 2, 3, and it says, and by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Continues, 1 John 3. We already read this once. This picks up in verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit who he has given. 1 John 5, 2 and 3. By this, we know that we love the children of God. When we love God, and obey his commandments. Have you ever heard that verse before? That's a fascinating verse. You know that you love the children of God when you love God and obey his commands. Anybody had this happen before in their life? You have sin in your life and it causes broken relationship. Anybody ever have that happen? (laughs) In your marriage? With your kids? With your parents? With your coworkers? Guys, I'm telling you, the only way you have fellowship with other believers is if you are really loving God and obeying his commands because sin separates, sin divides, sin destroys relationships. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Man, that's the thing that our our world tries to tell us. Our world tries to tell us that obeying God is a burden. And that anything that is a burden is bad. If it makes you feel bad or if it makes you feel convicted or or if it just is something that's hard to do, don't do that because it's not natural, right? That's what modern psychology would tell us. 
just do what your impulses tell you to do. But no, Christ confronts that. And the reality of the matter is, is that if you really love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, you want to do his will. You want to walk in his ways. But we also want to recognize all of us, and we'll talk about this in a moment, all of us will struggle with sin and battle sin. And so it isn't going to be just that it's always easy. I don't want you to hear that. It's not always easy to follow Jesus. It's actually hard. But God is with us in the midst of that. That's why it's important to know that his spirit is with you when you love him and you seek to keep his commands. Second John says it this way, and this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning so that you should walk in it. So number one was if we're gonna abide in fellowship with God, we gotta believe in Jesus Number two, we've got to obey his commands. Number three, and this is, I've already started to hint at this. One of the things that's different, when we think about abiding with Jesus, sometimes there's this danger of saying, hey, I have to be a perfect in this. That is not what God expects. And one of the things I love about 1 John is it helps us know that it's not perfection that he demands, it's honesty. It's acknowledging, it's rejecting, and then confessing our sins. That's one of the way we stay in fellowship with him. We can abide in God even when we fail in sin as long as we confess. Look at what he says in one of the most famous verses. He says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John, 1 John 3 says this one, everyone who makes practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. This is a key for us. We need to recognize sin as sin. We need to recognize it as lawlessness. And, and, and again, First John and the men, we went through this all the time. When it talks about practicing sin, it doesn't mean that you fail and you struggle with sin. It means you have a lifestyle that basically says, this is not sin. <laughs> and this is, and you're not acknowledging it or confessing it or repenting of it. You are just living in it and you're okay with living in it. And so one of the things we have to do is we have to acknowledge it as what it is and then begin to reject it. Because if we don't acknowledge sin as sin, then we've got to ask ourselves the question, where is our heart? Have we really believed? Who is God to us? Because that could be a sign that we haven't believed, right? So we need to make sure that we are checking ourselves it says this in the two verses down, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Again, that doesn't mean you don't struggle with sin. That doesn't mean you don't fail at sin or even have persistent sins. It means that you never ever acknowledge it as sin. <laughs> like, and you've continued to just live a lifestyle of that. That's a longer story. And again, deeper dive. If you wanna go deeper, study the book of 1 John. Final thing for abiding fellowship with God. And this one is so important. If you're going to have abiding fellowship with God, we need to behold the love of God for us. Guys, the only way we're going to love God is if we see how much he has actually loved us. And the book of 1 John really clearly declares just how great his love for us is. This is 1 John 3, 1 and 2. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. 
The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Church, we have to understand how great that truth is. My encouragement would be for you to take that verse and meditate, it on, meditate on it and study it to understand just how great the love of the Father that we should be called the children of God. And one day that means we will be like him because we will see him as he is. 1 John 3 continues, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 1 John 4, 9 through 11, some of the most famous verses in all of scripture. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Again, another verse that you should sit with this week. If we don't understand the price that had to be paid for our sins to be forgiven, if you don't understand that God loved us before we loved him, which is the next verse, we loved because he first loved us. If we don't get that in our heart and mind, we will lean probably towards the legalistic self-righteousness that so often befalls religion. We will lose a heart that is set on fire because until you see that you needed grace and that God gave you grace that you could never earn, until you see that you being born again is a miracle upon miracles that you could never earn or deserve or be worthy of, but God so loved you that he sent his son to die on your behalf. If that does not stir you to worship and praise and passion about his name, then you're going to be creeping towards a dead religion, a religion that has no life and goes through the motions of rules. Our hearts should never lose the wonder that God would love us and give his son for us. And it's so easy because we've lived in the Bible belt and we've heard sermons and we know these things and we get further down the road and we forget just how sinful we were or we don't acknowledge just how sinful we still are and that God would love us even while we're still sinners. To abide in Christ, to abide in God's love, we must keep our eyes fixed on what he has done with us. Jude says it this way, but you, beloved, first of all, just know that you're beloved, building yourself up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourself in what? The love of God. Keep yourself in the love of God. You've got to recognize how God loved you, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. This leads me to my final two things you need to abide in. And, the, and we're going to move really quickly here to move towards wrapping up. But if these books call us to contend for the faith, standing firm in a culture of compromise by abiding in the fellowship with God, we need to understand that it's so, just like Jesus put these two commands together, to love God with all our heart, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. To be able to do this, we have to not only love God, but we have to love God's people, and we have to abide in relationship with them. First John 4, 21 says this, 
And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. That which we have seen, which we have heard and proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. The, the reason we proclaim the gospel is so that we can have fellowship with other people who God has called. We obey God's command. We share because we want to make sure that other people come to know who God is and have fellowship not only with us, but with the Father. We also obey. We've talked about this. We obey God because, and we share the gospel because it, when we have fellowship with God, we have fellowship with others. He says this, if we say we have fellowship within him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. Again and again, our relationship with God and our relationship with other and our relationship with the gospel is all connected. By this, we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. The gospel message sets up the way we're called to do life together. And that life should be a life of laying down our lives, walking with the light, living for God, caring for others. First John 2.10 says it this way, whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there's no cause for stumbling. We love by living a holy life. We love by showing people who God is and what it looks like to walk in relationship with him. And we do that not just in our words and how we speak, we also do that in the way we act. First John 3.18 says it this way, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Second and third John echo this theme of how they are called to love one another and serve one another by saying this. Third John says it this way, talking to the main recipient when he says, Beloved, if you, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that they may be fellow workers for the truth he's encouraging to say, hey, keep on caring for those other brothers who are out sharing the gospel. And then in 2 John, we hear him say this to the recipient. And I now ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Again, if we are gonna stand firm and contend for the gospel, we must have abiding fellowship with God. We must have abiding fellowship with others. And finally, we must have abiding fellowship with God's word. These are just two small scriptures to wrap up. He says this, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Church, the Spirit of God will never contradict the word of God. And the word of God is what remains. And to remain faithful in these days, we must remain in Christ's teaching and the teaching of the apostles, which they have given us. Third John says it this way, for I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. And that vision of walking is that remaining in the truth of the gospel message. So, if we look at this, if we are called to contend for the faith and to stand firm in a culture of compromise, it's going to take abiding fellowship with God, abiding fellowship with God's people, and abiding fellowship with God's word. 
And I close thinking about this. Is it possible for us to actually do this? Is it possible for you and I to be like the story I told about John at the beginning? To be a man so in love with God, so so assured of the testimony of what he has seen and what he has heard that he would go into any death and any face anything to, to reach one person who is strayed? Or are we so afraid that our culture might cancel us that we would never live for the gospel, that we'll, we'll keep our faith private? Guys, if we're going to stand firm and contend for the gospel, it's going to take us abiding with God, abiding with one another, and abiding in his word. But more than anything, you got to understand Jude ends saying that the only way it's possible is by God's grace and by God's power. Jude ends his book saying this. Now to him, listen to this. None of this is able in your own strength. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Church, it is by grace you have been saved. It is by grace that you will remain. And it is by grace through faith that the faithful God will be faithful to you. May you remain, may you abide and may you have fellowship with that one true and holy God and Jesus Christ's son who he sent. Would you bow with me? Lord, we have nothing to bring before you other than your son. And we cling at the foot of your cross knowing that we cannot stand firm. We cannot contend for your gospel unless you, by your grace and mercy, give us the strength. May we live to declare your glory and majesty, power and dominion now and forevermore. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.